Well, have a seat, have a seat, and welcome. Uh, my name is Kevin Bear. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, so if we haven't met yet, it is an honor to be with you. I have been out for the past uh, uh, three weeks from, um, the, from Sunday morning services, uh, from the preaching part of it, so it's an honor to be back. We had an amazing time to get uh, a little vacation as a family. We were gone for a week, and that was absolutely amazing, and so I encourage you to take a vacation. Uh, if it ever stops raining, uh, the beach will be nice uh, for you to do that. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be continuing our series in Kings and Prophets, and we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 3 this morning, looking at uh, one of the the most interesting biblical characters, in my estimation, it's the life of Solomon, King Solomon. And so we're going to look really two weeks at the life of Solomon. Um, this week we'll be looking at his unlimited potential, a man that had so much potential in his life. Uh, and next week we'll look at his uh, tragic legacy. So First Kings chapter 3, I'm going to read a few verses for us and then we will jump in. We'll start in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3 of First Kings. It says this, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Now Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for the multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, thank you for an opportunity, a place to gather together, to sing songs to you, to worship you for who you are, and to learn from you. So Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, you would open up our hearts, that we might see rightly what you're trying to communicate to us through the life of Solomon. And Lord, we can know in the life of Solomon, we see a tremendous wealth and wisdom, but we also see great tragedy. And so Lord, I pray that as we look at his life, we would also look into our own lives, that we would be men and women that are not a tragic hero, but ones that can live for you all the way to the end and can be um, preserved from some of the major mistakes made by this man. So Lord, I pray that you would guide our hearts, guide our time by the power of your spirit. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, on our vacation, uh, we went to Galveston Island, and we built sandcastles. And a year ago, if you were with us, uh, I actually shared some stories about sandcastles, and so I thought it was a time a year into this to share another story. Um, but this time, I mean, we love building sandcastles. Uh, we love, like, using even colors to make the sandcastles. But this year, we are going to take it to a new level. Um, Hillary's mom, an uh, amazing woman, she decided to uh, hire a person to teach us how to build sandcastles. 
And so they, he comes in, and he's got these buckets, he's got shovels, he's got all of this equipment. He comes loading it in, and he goes, all right, people, we're going to teach you how to build these epic sandcastles. And we're like, okay, that, this is going to be great. And so we, uh, he puts us to work, you know, which is, which is part of being a great sandcastle instructor. Uh, don't do it yourself. You, you put the tools in the hands of people, and you make them dig a trench to make sandcastles. So this is hilarious. So we're all like sweating there. Did we pay for this? Yeah, we paid for this. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're shoveling up. We're getting this huge mound of sand. He teaches us how to pack it. And then he teaches us how to make these uh, individual structures. And if you, if you look behind us, that's, that's my family. That's my amazing wife, Hillary, and our four amazing kids. Uh, they're actually ours. They didn't pose. That He didn't bring the kids. Like those were, we brought those. Anyway, so, so we're there, and, and we land out, and he teaches us how to soak the sand in water and mix it together in order to create this kind of strong structure and then kind of dump that out. And then on top of that, there's the next level that you do. And you put sand in a large bucket again, you mix it together. But this time, instead of dumping the whole thing out, uh, you, you kind of make pancakes. You like scoop in a bunch of sand and kind of settle it on top and kind of shake it a little bit. And then you can build this structure even higher. And then on top of that, there's like another level to it, like how you can make bricks. And that's what, it's very intense, a very intense sandcastle preparation process. And so we're going through all this process, learning this skill. And, and there's the reason for that. It's because if, if you've tried to make sandcastles on your own, what you probably do is you take dry sand and start stacking it and maybe kind of spit on it to kind of get it to stick. But that's not the way to build strong sandcastles. There's actually a method to it. There's a process to make stable castles. And once you get this strong structure, you can begin carving on it. And so that's what we get, began doing is literally shaving off parts of of sand to create this structure. Now, some of us were more adept at it than others. I was not very adept. And so if you look really closely, you can see, wow, that one all the way to the side looks amazing. Yeah, that was the professional. Um, and as you go across, he's kind of helping us out to go along the way. And, and, and what was amazing in looking at this process is this. If you put the right pieces in place and you go through the right process, you can build a structure that's somewhat strong. But if you go through the wrong process and you don't pay attention to the details, eventually that little structure is going to collapse. And actually, that's what happened during the process. Someone didn't mix it quite right, didn't have the right materials. And so as they were going along, this, this piece became worthless. And so we had to wipe it out and start again. And now, why do I tell you that? Because the same is true when we, when we apply it to building our lives. There's a process you can go to, through in life that will build a strong, stable life. And there's processes you can go through that th over time, what will be revealed is what you're building is not actually strong, it's not actually stable. And we've seen that in our culture in all sorts of structures. In fact, in, in, South, in, in Southern Florida, there was a structure that was built, a condominium complex. And one of the, the tragedies of our nation is watching this structure collapse. Many people have lost their lives in the collapse of this structure in the Miami area. They began an investigation of this. It was a 13-story condominium. And Florida, the a collapse, they say this, that it appeared to start somewhere in the bottom, somewhere at the base of the structure. There was some failure there. And in one article in the New York Times, they talk about what happened in this structure, and here's what they call it. They called it progressive collapse, the gradual spread of failures that could have occurred for a variety of reasons, including design flaws 
or less robust construction allowed under the building codes for four, for four decades ago when the building was complete. What they're saying is this, that there's, there's something wrong in the structure. And there's something that four decades ago was set wrong. Forty years ago, there were some structural pieces that were set wrong. And over time, what we realized was those flaws became revealed eventually. Those flaws in the structure led to its eventual collapse. One civil engineer said this in the article, It stood for 40 years, and it collapsed relatively suddenly, said Glenn Arbell, director of collaborative reporting. And the question is this, why did it collapse in a moment? And the reason I thought this article was so interesting is because that's often how we feel in moments of life. We can go through the days of our life and we feel like we're strong. We feel like the structures are built well. And then suddenly something happens and the whole thing falls. Often we don't realize that something is wrong until it suddenly collapses. And that's actually what we see in the life of Solomon. Solomon ruled over the nation of Israel for 40 years. Solomon was a wealthy, wise incredibly talented individual. He was one with unlimited potential, just a few of his accolades. He wrote three books of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. He also wrote some some songs, you see, in in the book of Psalms. He was regarded as one of the, the most talented men that Israel had ever produced. He oversaw the nation of Israel to its highest economic level, He wrote extensively. He built temples and cities, and and he brought Israel into the global conversation. Israel was not a, a global empire, but under Solomon, this nation rose in prominence, in prestige. Everyone was looking at Israel because of the work of of Solomon. He was one, if they could say someone has unlimited potential, Solomon would fit the bill. And so what I want to look at this morning is this, his incredible start, how he was set up for success, his humble beginnings, but then the cracks that begin to emerge in his foundation. So let's begin by looking first at his incredible start. 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 through 25, record Solomon's birth. It says it this way, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, And went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. We see description of Solomon's birth. And and you may see a few characters that, that should pop up in interest to you. First is that he is the son of Bathsheba. Now, most commentators, most scholars believe that he is the second son of Bathsheba because her first son passed away because of the sin of David. That was, the first son was lost as part of the judgment of God. And then you see this next son being born, and, and Solomon is born. Now, his Solomon, his name means this, peace or peaceable. See, Solomon was this picture of God's grace to David. David who had sinned, David who had done amazing failure, amazing failures in his life, God moved in with grace on Solomon's life, and and a picture of that grace was Solomon, one that would bring peace between God and for one another. Both both David and his wife Bathsheba, who were heartbroken, now there was this, this new life, and it brought peace and healing. 
And you see a second name that was given to him by Nathan the prophet, Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. So Solomon at the very beginning of his birth is one that is, is one of, of peace, but also one who is demonstrating the love of God. And what's also fascinating about Solomon is that not only was he born of the king, Israel was rising in prominence. The greatest king Israel would ever have was Solomon's father, David. But there's a second person that you see right here at his birth that's going to be there his entire life. It's Nathan the prophet. Nathan, who was the one who confronted David. Nathan is the one who spoke from God to the people. One of the most, um, the most prominent spiritual leaders, the prophet Nathan, was right there at Solomon's birth, and he is going to be present at Solomon's inauguration as king. Some scholars even believe that Nathan the prophet was, was a, a mentor in some ways to Solomon his entire life. And so look at, look at his birth. Look at the situation. I mean, if, you're, if anyone is born in the perfect environment, it's Solomon. His dad's the king, the highest, the greatest king that the nation has seen. Nathan the prophet is there his entire life helping and encouraging him. You could not ask for a better start to life than what Solomon had. And then you see that Solomon is set up for success. Not only is he, does he have an amazing start, he is set for success. He is in the presence of David the king. And here's what David knew. David knew that he wasn't going to accomplish all that he wanted to. See, David, because of his, um, his background, because of all the things that he did in his life, was not going to be able to build the temple to God. And so David knew this, and so what he was going to do is what any good dad would want to do, which is if he can accomplish things in his own life, he's going to set up his son for something better. And so he spent the rest of his life amassing the structures, amassing the details that are needed to build the worship of God. And you see it in 1 Chronicles 22. It says it this way, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord, the God, here the altar of burnt offering. And then David, verse 2, commanded to get together all the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel. And he set stone cutters to prepare the dressed stones for the building of the house of God. And David also had great quantities of iron for nails of the doors of the gates for the clamps as well as bronze and quantities beyond weight, and cedar timbers without number for the Sidonians and Tyrians, brought in great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of, of fame and glory throughout all the lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided the materials in great quantity before his death. So David spent the rest of his life saying, if I'm not going to build the temple of God for worship, I'm going to set up my son to do it. And so he sets up all the materials. Everything is ready for Solomon to move in. And then look what David says to Solomon. He instructs him in how to live life and what to do next. Verse 7, David said to Solomon, my son, I had in my heart to build the house for the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build my house in my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. He says, David, you cannot do what you want because there's too much in your past that's going to be contradicting to what the worship of God is going to be. You've shed too much blood. Therefore, you will not build my house to worship. Then he says, Behold, a son shall be born to you, and you shall 
be a man, he shall be a man of rest, of, of peace, of shalom. I will give him rest from all the surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. He says, there's going to be a son that comes from you, David, and he's going to be a man of peace. You're going to call him Shalom, which means peaceable, Solomon, peaceable. And then you're going to have him be the one that demonstrates the worship of God. Solomon is set up for success. And then as David is reaching his last days, he calls Solomon in and says, you will be the one to come in and be king after me. Solomon could not have had a more perfect setup. Everything was prepared. David removed all of his enemies. He set Solomon up to lead in the nation. And then Nathan comes in in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 11, and says, okay, let's make sure that Solomon moves in. Some other people were looking to steal power. Nathan comes in, David comes in, and they move Solomon into this per- perfect spot of leadership over the nation. And in that moment, Solomon starts making decisions. Most scholars believe that Solomon was between 20 and 25 when he assumed the throne. So a young man, a young man, 20 to 25 years old, inexperienced. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, we get the first moment when God moves in and has a conversation with Solomon. He literally appears to him. There's three times in Solomon's life when he has a face-to-face individual conversation with God. And this is the first one in 1 Kings chapter 3. And God comes to Solomon and he's, it says this. This is very interesting what you see about Solomon his humble beginnings. The first quality that you see in Solomon, what made him kingly, comes in verse, um, verse 3. It says, Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the statues of David, his father. The first quality that we see in Solomon in his humble beginnings is this, that he loved the Lord. What do you want said about you in your life? What do you want said about you? Immortalized in history about Solomon is the first thing we see about him is that he loved God. He genuinely had a love for the Lord, especially in his youth. Now, let me me tell you this. There There is no more important quality that you can have in your life than your genuine love for the Lord, particularly when you're young. Particularly when you're young, that you make that commitment to say, I'm going to love the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord with my whole life. That's the starting point that Solomon has. And then God sees this this man that not only he loved, but loved God. And then he comes in and says, I'm going to let you ask whatever you want. Verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. Now, there's never moments in the Bible that I I think are like Arabian Nights, 2001 Arabian Nights, but this moment is kind of like that. I mean, God appears to, to Solomon in this moment, in this dream, and says, hey, you can wish for anything you want. You can't wish for more wishes, right? You got one wish. Ask for anything that you want. Imagine if God came to you in a moment and said to you, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. I mean, many of you would be like, perfect. I would ask for a new car, a new house, kids that loved me, whatever. You'd pick like your thing that you want, and you'd be like, I will ask for that. 
I want that moment. And what would you ask for? Just think about that for a moment. If God came to you in a dream, and so just pick it. Just pick whatever you want. What would you ask for from me? And think about it. He's 20 to 25 years old, so put you back in your 20s. What would you have asked God to do when you were in your 20s? You're like, I want a spouse. I want a sweet car. I want wealth. I want power. What would you ask for in your 20s? That's Solomon in this moment, and he says this to God. And Solomon said, you've shown great steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept him this great steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his throne today. This is the first of four things that we see that Solomon understood in this moment. The first thing that Solomon understood is his place. He knew that the reason David was blessed was because of the steadfast love of God. That steadfast love is the word has said in Hebrew. It's the loving kindness of God. Solomon knew that the reason God blessed David was because of his place under God. Do you know your place under God? He knew this. He's like, I know success only comes if I'm rightly related to God. He says, first of all, I I know that you have loved my father. And the second thing he understood is this. He understood his age and inexperience. Look at verse 7. And now, O Lord, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, and I do not know how to go out and come in. That phrase, go out and come in, is what they would use in Hebrew to describe going out to war or coming back. And he says, I'm young. I'm inexperienced. I don't know how to lead your people. I don't know how to wage war. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. I am young and inexperienced. And and that's really, really crucial for people to understand. Are there their inexperience in life? that there is wisdom beyond them. And I'll I'll tell you what, I had this conversation earlier this week with with a few men that are older and wiser than me. We were talking about something and and a situation came up and I said, you know, I really appreciate your wisdom on this. He's like, like, I don't have as much experience in this as as you do. And and this individual um, who's a little bit older than me said, hey, stop, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, Like, don't say that. And I said, no, you are wiser and you have experience in leading ministry that I don't. I will benefit from your words to me. Let me tell you what, one of, the, one of the gifts you can give to the gray hairs around you or the no hairs around you is some deference to their age and experience. They have wisdom that you don't possess. And that's, that's what Solomon saw. He's like, I, I'm inexperienced in this, Lord. I need you. Verse eight, you see that Solomon understood his limits. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. He says, I I understand this third piece, that I'm limited. I can't count all the people. I don't know all the people. I don't know the right way to make decisions and to move and to lead these people well. I do not know. David built this kingdom over over decades. I can't just step in in my 20s and lead this. I have limits in my life. And so he finally asked, number four, his fourth thing that he understood was his need. He says, give, verse nine, give your servant therefore an understanding mind 
to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? Isn't that amazing that Solomon says all throughout this text, he doesn't take ownership. He doesn't say these are my people. This isn't my country. This isn't my work. Every time as he's talking to God, he says, this is your people. This is the people that you have given me. And every time there's a deference to God, and he says, look, what I need, God, to lead your people is your wisdom. Have you ever come to a moment when you realize that you are in over your head and you need wisdom from beyond yourself? When I was interviewing for this job, um, I, they set through uh, many interviews with elders and with staff and different people. And, and one of the questions that was asked of me was this. They said, they said, why should we entrust our people to you? Which is a great question to ask a pastor. Why should we entrust our people to you? And this was my answer to them. I said, you shouldn't. Kevin, that doesn't sound very confident. And I said, well, you shouldn't. You should entrust them to Jesus Christ. And I will do my absolute best to follow Jesus Christ. And as I follow Jesus Christ and serve him with the community of believers, with that I have a hope to try to lead his people well. See, First Peter says this, that, that the pastors are under shepherds. There's the chief shepherd. He is Jesus. His, his spot is taken. Everyone else are under shepherds to him. And in order to lead this church well, what I need is the wisdom of God. And let me tell you what, the same is true in whatever you're leading in your life. In leading your kids, in leading your business, in leading your work, in leading your family, you are in over your head. And all you have to do is live life a little bit longer to realize that you're going to encounter circumstances, situations, conflicts that you don't know how to handle. And what God says is, come to me. I have the wisdom that you Need And in Solomon, you see this humble beginning. God, these are your people. God, this situation is well beyond me. And you see him coming low to say, Lord, will you give me a mind that can make the right decisions to lead these people well? And look at how God responds in verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this. It pleases God when you ask him for his wisdom. And God said to him, because you've asked this and not asked for yourself a long life or riches or the life of your enemies, because you've asked for yourself an understanding and to discern what is right, behold, I will do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has ever been before and none like you shall arise after you. I will also give you what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Isn't that phenomenal? God says, because you've, you've come humbly, because you've asked for wisdom from me, I'm going to give you a wise mind that's unlike any mind that's been ever, that the world has ever seen or will ever see. I'm going to give you intelligence, wisdom, discernment. And as you see the breadth of what, what Solomon did, it was absolutely incredible. 
In fact, there's a queen of Sheba that comes from far away and looks at Solomon. She says, I have, I have heard stories of your wealth and wisdom, but they weren't telling the half of it. People coming from far away, looking at the life of Solomon, looking at him and seeing him interact, saying, there are qualities within you that are unparalleled. God blessed him and he promised him wealth, prestige, power, success, everything that would make his life enhanced, everything that you could ever want, an unlimited potential. Imagine that you were given that. Your one request, what would it be from God? And God says yes and more. Imagine you have unlimited potential. There's a movie that, was, that came out several years ago called Limitless. And in the movie, basically, this guy could take a pill and then his mind expanded to limitless opportunities. Like he could absorb information. He could work really well. He could do whatever he wanted. If you were given that little pill, that little moment to do whatever you wanted, what would turn out from your life? You've thought about that? That power is within God's hands. How would you steward it? Here's the one statement I want to give you to remember from this part of the study of the life of Solomon, of unlimited potential. Unlimited talent without growth in depth of character is a tragedy waiting to happen. Unlimited talent without growth in the depth of character is a tragedy waiting to happen. And unfortunately, that's what plays out in Solomon's life. He could not have been set up better, but soon cracks in his foundation begin to emerge. And we've seen this in our culture. Athletes with unlimited talent, seemingly the ability to, to win golf games when they're in their teenagers that, that people would love to do, but, but through cracks in their character, they're not able to sustain that success. Amazing football stars that can, that can get a, out of defenders, can throw touchdowns, could beat amazing, the best programs in college football, but, but cracks in character lead these individuals to shipwreck their life. And what we see in the life of Solomon is these cracks that run pretty deep in his heart and life. And we see it really at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 3. The cracks of his life. And there's two cracks I'm going to show you from this text. The first crack is this, his view of women. And his second crack is this, his view of worship. Look in 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 1, it says this, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So the, so the first thing that we see, the first crack in his character is his view of women. Solomon was one that could not keep his lusts under control. We're going to see later on in Solomon's life, he had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. That is out of control. <laughs> it's going to go bad for him. 700 wives and 300 concubines. You may be like, oh, well, Kevin, that's just, kind of, that's just kind of weird. Like, no one could possibly do that nowadays. Men, you have access to that same harem on your phone. 
his view of women are going to tank him. And you may not have the physical harem, but we have the digital one. And for many men, that, are, that is a crack that is destroying our life. The first crack that we see in the life of Solomon that we'll look at a little bit more next week is this, his view of women and this, this absurd view of sexuality. The second crack that we see is this, his view of worship. Chapter, verse 2, chapter 3, First Kings, it says, The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. What Solomon is going to do in his life is he's going to make compromises in his worship of God. Now, the high places were, were places that there wasn't a temple built. We, we saw that earlier. There wasn't a temple. There wasn't a single place to worship God. And so, so people were sacrificing to God in the high places. And the problem is, is this, is that, is that every people group of worshiping false religions in this land of Canaan practiced this. They would worship on the high places to any number of gods. And what we're going to see in Solomon's life, because of his view of women and that uncontrolled sexuality, what he's going to do eventually is continue this practice throughout all of his ruling. In fact, he's going to build worship centers for their gods, and he is going to get pulled into their worship. And those cracks are there at the very beginning of his reign. And when those cracks go unchecked, they become explosive. They become tragic. And we'll see next week that the kingdom is torn from him, literally ripped in two, because these cracks explode to epic proportions. So in our closing time together, I want to give you three lessons from Solomon's unlimited potential. Three lessons I see from this text about Solomon's unlimited potential. The first lesson is this. No amount of intelligence can stop sin's corruption. No amount of wisdom or intelligence can stop sin's corruption. Have you ever heard someone say this phrase, like, I'm too smart for that? Like, I'd never fall for that? Like, I- I'm, I'm better than that? Like, I would never make those mistakes. Those people were so dumb. If they were smart like me, they wouldn't do that. In fact, there was a, there was a study done in the Atlantic I, I read recently, and it says the title of the article is this, Why Do Smart People Do Foolish Things? And they say this, intelligent is not the same as critical thinking. And so this, the author of this article says this, hey, there are advantages to being intelligent. Uh, it's, it's undeniable. You might imagine doing well in school or in work might lead to greater life satisfaction. But several large-scale studies have failed to find evidence that IQ impacts life satisfaction or longevity. University of Waterloo psychologist um, Igor Grossman and his colleagues argue that most intelligent tests fail to capture real-world decision-making and our ability to interact well with others. This, in other words, is perhaps why smart people do dumb things. The science shows it. You can be so smart and do things that are so dumb. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived in his day. And he made some pretty major mistakes. And there's a reason for that. Because intelligence doesn't stop you from sinning. 
Intelligence doesn't stop you from making some very poor decisions. And many of you that are married realize this. You are very, very smart, men. And you've married a, an amazing woman, but you're smart. And, you're, and you've told all your friends, hey, once I get married, all the dumb things you're doing, I'm never going to do because I'm so smart. I understand women. And then you got married. And you realize how dumb you really are. <laughs> Unless you don't. Unless you don't. And ladies, you thought you knew how to lead this man and how to make him do what you wanted him to do because you've watched all the movies and you've read Cosmopolitan and you're like, I know how to make him do what I want. You're so smart. And then you marry a man and you realize, why is there so much conflict? And that conflict there can become explosive because none of us are as smart as we think. Solomon no amount of wisdom could stop the mistakes in his life. The second thing that we see from his life is this, that increased talent without an increased depth in character is a tragedy waiting to happen. Increased talent without increased depth of character is a tragedy waiting to happen. The problem with our culture and our society is this, that we believe that success legitimizes actions. If there's good something good on the outside, it legitimizes that person's life decisions. Success legitimizes actions, and we see that all the time until it doesn't. Abraham Lincoln famously said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. If you really want to see what's going on in the heart of a person, give them power and see how they respond. Uh, Charles Swindoll has a, a, an amazing little devotional on the life of Solomon. He writes this. He, taught, he calls the slow fade, the cracks in Solomon's life, deterioration. He says, deterioration is never loud, never obvious, seldom even noticed. Tiny cracks in a stucco wall. It hardly seems worth our time or attention. Never sudden. Character threads don't suddenly snap. As the British expositor F.B. Meyer once put it, no man suddenly becomes base. Slowly, silently, subtly, things are tolerated that were once rejected. At the outset, everything appears harmless, maybe even a bit exciting. But with it comes an insignificant wedge in the gap that grows wider as moral erosion joins hands of spiritual decay. What we see in the life of Solomon is that he allows these cracks to go unfixed. And that erosion gets deeper and deeper, and suddenly we see some really huge fractures in his life. And the third thing I learned from the, from the life of Solomon is this. God gives enough warning to get us back on track. You see, God is going to speak into Solomon's life. In 1 Kings 9, he comes back and he gives him a warning. And really, the warning that he gives Solomon points him back to a passage in the book of Deuteronomy. See, Moses knew that Israel was going to ask for a king. They were going to ask for someone to come in. And so God knew that several hundred years before they would ever have a king. 
And so back in the book of Deuteronomy, several hundred years before a king was ever in the picture and said, let me warn you when you have a king of what not to do. And every king of Israel was supposed to write down the Pentateuch and have their own copy of the Pentateuch to walk around with, to live by the law of God. They were supposed to read this and know this and apply this to their life. And here's what God warns. He says, when you come into the land, the Lord your God is giving you, this is Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, and you possess it and to dwell in it and say, I will set a king over myself like the nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Only he must not acquire for himself many horses or causes people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Thus the Lord said, you shall never return to Egypt again. And he shall not acquire for himself many wives to test his heart, to turn away, to acquire more gold or silver. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book of the copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and he shall keep it with him all of his days and read and learn the statutes of God. And what we see in the life of Solomon is that he fails at every command. He marries an Egyptian woman. He acquires horses and wealth beyond all estimation. He does not follow the word of the Lord. And God over and over to our lives is saying, are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Do you know the success and wealth and prominence and prestige will not make you happy in life? Do you know that all the wisdom of the world will not make you know God better? Do you know that all the success that you hope to find will never bring life satisfaction? Do you know that that true life is found in knowing God and knowing his son who he sent? Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? And every week we try to encourage you, seek Jesus because there's nothing else in life that will satisfy your needs. And he gives us this picture of Solomon to say, do you know this man? He had all the potential that American culture is dreaming of and he ended in a train wreck. How many times do we have to watch the same story play out over and over and over again before we realize that life is never found in things? It's found in him. Stephen Fry an English actor, broadcaster, comedian, director, and writer, not a Christian, says the same thing. I came across this quote, and I was like, that is disturbingly accurate. He says this, I know that money, power, prestige, and fame do not bring happiness. If history teaches us anything, it teaches us that. You know it. Everybody agrees that this this to be the manifest truth, so self-evident, is to not need repetition, to uh, to, to need no repetition. What is so strange to me is that despite the fact that the world knows this, it does not want to know it, and chooses almost always to behave as if it wasn't true. Oh my gosh. It does not suit the world to hear that people who are leading the high life an inevitable life, a privileged life, are as miserable most days as anybody else, despite the fact that it must be obvious that they would, given all we have agreed that money and fame do not bring happiness. Instead, the world would prefer to enjoy the idea against what it knows to be true, that wealth and fame do in fact insulate and protect against misery, 
and it would rather we shut up if we are planning to indicate otherwise. Not even a believer that's saying the same things that God is saying to Solomon. Life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Life is found in knowing your creator and knowing the son who he sent. And when Jesus came into the world, the gospel writers say this, someone wiser than Solomon is here. Are you listening to him? So in close, I want to give you a couple ways to respond. The first is this. I, I don't know where God has spoken to you this morning, but I, I guarantee you for many of us, there is something that we're chasing that will be it. Maybe it's the job. Maybe it's the opportunity. Maybe it's the experience. It's some pleasure. Life is never found in the thing. It's found in the creator of all things. So for some of you, it's just to come back to Jesus and say, Lord, I've been running after so many other things. I haven't been coming to the one who can satisfy me. Our prayer team is here and we want to pray with you. If that's one of your struggles that you're walking through, there's something that's pulling you away from following Jesus completely, we want to pray alongside you and encourage you to walk with Jesus. The second thing is this. There, there may be some people here with a, a physical ailment, um, a healing that you particularly need. Maybe it's a physical healing. Maybe you're getting surgery or, or you're in the process of, of medical treatment. We want to pray alongside you. We are a church that believes in the power of God to heal. And so our prayer team is here to pray alongside you, to, to pray that God would heal uh, your body. And so come, we want to pray with you. And for the rest of us, I pray that we would excel still more in knowing the God who saved us. Jesus lived the perfect life we could not live. He died the death we deserve to die. And he promises us eternal life if we come to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the life of Solomon. <laughs> Not a perfect man by any means. In fact, a, a tragic hero in many ways. So Lord, I pray for, for us this morning that we would see clearly what you're trying to tell us. That no amount of wealth or wisdom or power or prestige will ever satisfy. And no amount of wisdom, wealth, or power, prestige will ever make us um, immune to the disasters of life. Jesus, you say, come to you, and you will restore us, you will forgive us, you will heal us. So Lord, we, we ask this morning that we could come to you, that you would renew and restore our broken hearts and help us to walk in line with your desires. It's in your name we pray. Amen.